Hello, I'm Sam and welcome to the Learn and Experience podcast. Today I'm joined by our two regular team members from Learn and Experience, the people bringing the world's youth together since 2009 through adventure, life skills and language. We've got language guru Mike. Hello. And the wonderful Miss Positive, Julie. Hi there. This episode will be visiting Greece, Kenya, Egypt, the Netherlands and the UK and around the world in six stories. In the big discussion this week, we talked about what we thought was the best meal of the day. We'll be looking at Brazil in fact or fiction. In Youth Spotlight this week, we're going to take you back in time and we're going to focus on a remarkable woman called Hazel Hill who was a 13-year-old schoolgirl who helped, basically helped us win the war. This week on Life Skills, I learned the basics of electricity. In this week's Language Corner, we're going to take a look at haikus, which is one of the oldest known traditions of poetry. This is the Learn and Experience podcast. Okay, Julie, what have we got this week? Okay, so we're off to Kenya, where, is it a bird? Is it a plane? No, it's a Google balloon beaming the internet. So a commercial deal in Kenya marks the first application of a balloon-powered internet in Africa. So this is the region with the lowest percentage of internet users globally. So a fleet of high-altitude balloons started delivering internet service to Kenya last week, um, extending online access to tens of thousands of people in the first ever commercial deployment of the technology. The balloons, which hover about 12 miles up in the stratosphere, which is well above commercial airplanes, will initially provide a 4G LTE network connection to a nearly 31,000 square mile area across central and western Kenya. So this is really good for the world's most important to-do list, which is the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, of which one of them is the importance of universal access to the internet. Well, I'm gonna take you to the Netherlands where Dutch detectives are investigating two apparent proof of life photographs of a five million pound Van Gogh painting that was stolen during lockdown from a museum. The images appear to show this Van Gogh painting alongside a copy of the New York Times published on the day of the painting's theft. I've, I've, I've got a joke if, you, if you're up for it. Tell us, Jules, what's your joke? Following last week's one, I can't wait. <laughs> what did the artist say to get his vehicle moving? What did the artist say to get his vehicle moving? Van Gogh! <laughs> <laughs> kind as always with your laughter, guys. Thank you. Okay, so I'm going to the north of England this week. Uh, a jet suit for paramedics, which could see patients reached in minutes by a flying medic has been tested by the Great North Air Ambulance Service of the Lake District. Andy Mawson, director of the operations at Great North Air Ambulance Service, came up with the idea and described seeing it as awesome. He said it meant a paramedic could fly to a fell top in 90 seconds rather than taking 30 minutes on foot. 
So the suits have two mini engines on each arm and one on the back allowing the paramedic to control their movement just by moving their hands. So just imagine Iron Man flying up a fell in the Lake District and there's your paramedic getting to them. Incredible. That's something out of... That's it's, honestly, if you, if you haven't seen the footage, the footage is amazing because it's, it, it's genuinely like Iron Man. You know, and it's real. Like we have this technology. Have they used it in a real life situation yet? Not yet. So they haven't, they're not being used yet, but it's the first, it was the first test, but presumably they'll, they'll be getting it out pretty soon. Amazon delivery drivers, probably. That <laughs> yeah. might be the next. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> so we are off to Egypt now, where two mummies of high status individuals have been found by archaeologists from Liverpool University in Taporisis Magna, which is a temple located about 30 miles from Alexandria. So the tomb has actually been untouched for about 2,000 years, but was opened by scientists for a new Channel 5 documentary in the UK called The Hunt for Cleopatra's Tomb. The two mummies found in the tomb are believed to have lived during Cleopatra's time, and they were also originally wrapped in gold leaf, which means that they were probably quite important people and may have interacted with the Queen herself. Unfortunately, no signs of the Queen, but this is quite an exciting find. Now, little known fact about Cleopatra. Now, she was probably known most for her beauty, but she spoke as many as a dozen languages and was educated in mathematics, philosophy and astronomy. Mm. Clever girl. Queen, sorry. Clever queen. I was thinking about my best mummy joke, but I, I don't have any. <laughs> I was literally looking at mummy jokes. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> one joke per episode, guys. It's me. Thank you. What did King Tut say when he had a nightmare? I don't know. What did King Tut say when he had a nightmare? I want my mummy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. How can you tell if a mummy has a horrible cold? I don't know. By his deep, loud coughing. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to take you to very close to home, to the UK, where Timothy Long, uh, who has become the youngest person to sail around Britain at 15 years old. He had to battle giant waves, gale force winds and sail for 24 hours straight to break the record, which was previously set back in 1995. Uh, so he joins a, a, a very elite group of people who've, who've done this, but more importantly, he, he raised 7,000 pounds for a cancer charity who uh, help young people rebuild their confidence after cancer through sailing. So really good achievement. Have you ever sailed, Mike? Uh, yes, I've sailed and I, took part in a sailing course in which knots were heavily featured. So for me, listening to the how to make a knot last week, uh, actually I got a text from my sister saying that she very much enjoyed listening to the podcast, but she noticed that I was very, very quiet during the knots feature. <laughs> <laughs> how long did it, did it take him? It took, took him 11 weeks. So during his 11 week voyage, imagine well, I think one of the nights you said he stayed awake for 24 hours to sail. That's uh, quite a feat, quite scary as well, I would say. Well, especially on your own, mm. isn't it? To do that as, a, as an individual sailor, that must be, must be really difficult to do. 
I'm scared of the dark, so I, I don't think that would have been very fun for me. I'm scared of storms, so I wouldn't have been very good either. And I get yeah. sick. <laughs> I get seasick too. Don't put me <laughs> yeah. in a boat in, in the middle of the night. Not fun. Okay, I'm going to Greece now, where a Frenchman called Arnaud Gerald has broken the world record for freediving. So freediving is diving underwater without any breathing equipment. The night before his dive, Gerald heard that the record had just been broken by a Russian diver called Alexei Molkanov, who descended to 111 meters. So holding his breath for three minutes and 24 seconds, Gerald swam down to a depth of 112 meters, just one more meter, to break the record. Three minutes, 24 seconds. How long do you think you can hold your breath, guys? Half a length. I've, I've, I've tried it. <laughs> so 12, 12 and a half meters. <laughs> I think it was <laughs> my, my good friend, Naomi, um, is very into to free diving, has watched lots of documentaries, and she just went on a course. And she said it's exhilarating. She's a very good swimmer as well. Oh, really? Um, but it, it's, her story sounded terrifying to me. She can hold her breath for a really long time as well. Because so, it's not just the uh, holding your breath, it's also the pressure, you know, going down that deep that has on your body, isn't it? Yeah, I think yeah. don't try this at home unless you've had previous training. So that was Around the World in Six Stories. this week we talked about what we thought was the best meal of the day so mite what is your 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 favorite meal of the day and why breakfast for me is hands down the most important meal of the day if you have a good breakfast chances are you're gonna have a good day too i often find i'm too busy for lunch so lunch is never really a dead certainty whereas breakfast is always there. And they, they, they say, the old expressions say, if you eat breakfast like a king, lunch like a prince or a princess, and dinner like a pauper, you're gonna have a very good day. Who Stick says to... that? Quote unknown, anonymous. <laughs> but somebody said it once and it stuck with me ever since I was little. And so what, what would be your favorite it. breakfast? Well, I start with Weetabix, have a couple of Weetabix in the morning and I have some coffee and and possibly if I'm really hungry I have a piece of toast and that combination gives me the fuel I need good fuel to get me through through to lunchtime where I have a little snack so breakfast definitely my favorite meal of the day Sam what about nice. you well I'm gonna go dinner time because I think by the time you get to the evening you've used a lot of energy you're really wanting that special meal and also you can either cook or you can go out. And I feel there's many more options in the evening to go out to, to get your best meal. I think it just rounds off a really good day. You may have not had the best day, but if you end up having this an amazing meal, that's what you go to bed thinking about and dreaming about. So the evening meal to me is the best meal of the day. Mm, I like the, like the idea of dreaming, having a nice dream after you've eaten. That sounds good. Well, on that note, that's why lunch, as if by magic, is my favorite meal of the day. I think I always eat the most at lunch. That's definitely my biggest meal of the day. 
And I think, although you could say this about either breakfast or dinner, but lunch is, you can go rogue. You can, you can have whatever you like. You can have breakfast type food. You can have dinner type food. You can kind of have whatever you want. It's kind of a, yeah, it's the most experimental meal I find. So that is why I like lunch. Okay, this week in Fact or Fiction, we are visiting Brazil. Are you ready, guys? Born ready. Ready. The capital of Brazil is Sao Paulo. So I'm going to say fiction because I don't think it's a capital, because I know what the capital is. Yeah, I'm also going to go with fiction because I believe that I also know what the capital is. Do you want to say it after three, so we're both not fibbing? Yeah. Okay. Sam, count us in. Three, two, one. Rio de Brasilia. <laughs> Brasilia, yes. Brasilia, with 4.2 million inhabitants, is the country's fourth largest city. Uh, the largest city is, in fact, Sao Paulo, and they have 12 million inhabitants. Do you know what the population of Brazil is? 90 million. I'm going to go a bit higher. I'd say about 110 million. It is, in fact, the sixth largest population in the world, and it is about 212 million people. The national animal of Brazil is the jaguar. True. Yeah, I don't... I don't know the answer but i think the jaguar might be found in the rainforest or somewhere in brazil i'm gonna go with true yeah i reckon the jaguar could work i'm going to say fiction not just to do the opposite of what mike's doing i think it's something else that i know that i can't remember brazil mm, no i i think fiction i'm sorry julie but it is in fact a fact jaguar is the national animal Spanish settlers founded the colony of Brazil in 1532. I am going to say fact. If I get this wrong, I'll be a bit embarrassed having studied South American history at university. So I'm going to go with I'm going to go with false because I think South America was discovered by the Portuguese explorer Vasco da Gama. Uh, and the Spanish went a bit further north. That is embarrassing because it is, in fact. <laughs> no, no, you're right, Mike. Well done. So it is correct. It was founded uh, in 1532, but it was the Portuguese uh, who found it. And it is still the only Portuguese speaking country in South America. The Amazon River is the world's longest river. Well, Having spent a week on the river, on the Amazon tributary, back when I was an 18-year-old boy, it felt pretty long. <laughs> it felt really long. So on that basis alone, I'm going to go with true. I am going to say fiction because I think it's the Nile. Ooh, Julie pulled one back. That is oh, the correct it? answer. It is, yeah. So the Amazon River is in fact the world's second longest river, but it is number one as the largest volume 
So it has the most water than any other river in the world. It is about 6,400 kilometers long. The river flows through Peru, Colombia, and enters the Atlantic Ocean in Brazil. It goes through Bolivia though as well. Or at least a tributary right. does. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Brazil has the greatest variety of animals of any country in the world. I'm going to say that is incorrect. It's fiction. And I'm going to say that it's true. And that's it. I don't have any, any other supporting evidence. I just think it's true. So if you think it's false, Julie, where do you think may be the country with the most animals for a potential bonus point? Australia? Well, I'm not sure about that because Brazil is, in fact, the home to 600 mammal species, 1,500 fish species, 1,600 bird species, and an amazing 100,000 different types of insects. Yeah, so Brazil has the greatest variety of animals of any country in the world. And this week's winner is Mike on Fact or Fiction. Thanks, thanks. That was a few lucky guesses in there, but uh, I'll take it. So this week's Youth Spotlight is about a remarkable woman called Hazel Hill. At the time of this story, she was a 13-year-old schoolgirl. And her father, called Fred, was employed by the Royal Air Force to engineer an aircraft that was capable of defeating the Nazis in World War II. And Hazel was a brilliant mathematician. And she helped her father work out really complex calculations in order to fit extra guns on the aircraft that was known as the Spitfire. Now, many people thought that this was totally impossible, but Hazel and her dad proved them all wrong. And we ask ourselves now, many, many years later, what would have happened if either she got these calculations wrong or if her dad had never asked her for help. So for me, those are the two really interesting questions to ask. And that also the idea of being passionate about maths and how that can have such a, a major impact on, on the world's history. This week, I learned the basics of electricity. And if you'll recall from last week, we learned about the UK 13 amp plug. And I suddenly realized that I didn't actually know what an amp was. So I turned to my brother, who in our household we call tech support, and he explained to me the very basis, basics of electricity. So we have amps, which are a measurement of the current flow rate of el electrons. We have watts, um, which is a measurement of the electrical power created. We have volts, which are a measure of the force of pressure under which electricity flows. So firstly, he explained the relationship between amps, watts and voltage. And he explained if you want to work out what one of them is and you have the other two, there's a formula that you can use. So Sam and Mike, if you want, if you have your pen and paper at the ready, if you want to draw a triangle for me, at the very top of the triangle, the top point, write the letter W. And at the bottom right hand point, write the letter A. And at the bottom left hand point, write the letter V. Okay, now in between the V and the A, if you write the word, 
along the line, multiply. And then between the W and the A, write the word divide. And the same on the other side. So between the W and the V, write the word divide. Okay, time for some maths. 13 amps is the, is the theoretical number. So this is what the device will draw. So I got my hairdryer, which was sitting next to me. So I know that my hairdryer is 2000 watts. And I know that the voltage is 230 AC because that's what the standard is in, in the UK. So how do we find out how many amps it's drawing, guys? So I think it's watts divided by volts, which is, well, it's about 100, isn't it? It's a bit less than 100. Uh, 10, sorry. <laughs> yeah, I, I was going to say more like, more like 10. <laughs> it's more like 10. Hang on. It's 8.6. I'd say about 8.6. Perfect. Well done. So that is how many amps are being drawn from my hairdryer. So if the max is 13, that's, that's quite a lot. So if you think about it, the higher the number, the more power you're using. Therefore, the more it's going to cost. So what kind of business has a lot of hairdryers? Hairdressers. Yeah. So their, gosh, their uh, electricity bill must be very high. Very, very high indeed. So yes, yeah, so if you want to work out what the watts are or what the voltage is or what the amps are, you can use this little triangle. Ooh, I really like useful. that. Yeah. Mm. Apart from my actual mathematics skills, I know how to do it and just... <laughs> oh dear me. So if you would like to, to hear more, you can go to our YouTube channel where you will see my brother teach me the basics of electricity. In this week's language corner, I want to talk to you about haikus. What is a haiku? A haiku is a three-line poem, which doesn't usually rhyme, and it always has the same syllable count. So in line one, there's a five syllables, line two, there's seven, and line three, there's five. And it originated in Japan back in the ninth century, so a long, long time ago. And it can be about anything, but usually it's about something to do with nature, something deep and meaningful, and something that evokes feelings about existence and, and, and nature. A lot, a lot of the time it's about the physical world. It's an example of a very famous haiku. It was written by a Japanese poet called Matsuo Byasho, and it's about autumn, autumn moonlight, a worm digs silently into the chestnut. Another example of a haiku was written by Judy Collis. Nature takes a sigh. The air lets out a deep breath. We reach for our blankets. And my effort at haiku was inspired by autumn and it being autumnal out there. Conkers lie on the ground. Soft light comes through the window. Change is all around. And the best thing about haikus is that you can write them about anything and you can be inspired by a word or an idea or a thought. But it's a really good one to do with your friends. So if you text your friends something, just text them one word and then they can write you back in a text message a, a little little haiku three lines of, of poems and 
it's it's a really good way of getting into poetry and feeling like you can you can do it because everybody can so that's this week's on the language corner and so syllables is the the beats in a word so if you think of window as having two beats or two stresses that's a syllable so it's five syllables here seven more syllables there is this a haiku I think you've cracked it there, Sam. That's a great yeah. one. Really great one. Uh, there, are, there are often examples of what am I haikus. And I have one, if you can guess what this is. Green and speckled legs, hop on logs and lily pads, splash in cool water. Frog, in it. It's a frog, in it. It's Kermit the Frog. Yeah, very good. Okay, this week in our LNE Spelling Bee, after last episode's surprise, amazing win by Julie. Mike, you've got some uh, catching up to do here. Okay, I'm ready. So the first word, Portuguese. Ooh, that's a tough one. Portuguese. <laughs> they speak the language of Portuguese. Portuguese. I feel mm. like I'm going to miss out a U somewhere, but I'm going to go for it. P O. R-T-U-G-E-S-E. But I think there's something missing after the G. <laughs> you really got to go with your instincts more, Julie. You, you are quite right. There is an extra U that you need before that, between the G and the E. P-O-R-T-U-G-U-E-S-E. Yeah, that's a tricky one, hey? <laughs> Not a good start this week, Julie. From your Egyptian story of the mummies... Uh, mummies were embalmed. Huh? I'm going to go for E-M-B-A-L-M-E-D. Embalmed. So I'd say it's E-M-B-A-L-M-E-D. That is correct. So it's the same as Judy's spelling. So well done. Okay, the final one, Judy. We've just heard it. A haiku. I'm going to spell it phonetically because that's all I can do. So I'm going to spell it H-I dash C-O-O, haiku. <laughs> haiku. Well, is technically a Scottish word. And uh, so yeah, I'm gonna yeah. go H-I dash C-O-O. Uh, whilst phonetically that would work, uh, the correct spelling is haiku of H-A-I, K-U. Um, it's a Japanese word, refers to the to what it is, which is a short three-line poem. And you did obviously have a slight advantage having it written in front of you, Mike. The onus was on Julie to get the right spelling, and on this occasion she didn't, so you do hold your title this week as the language guru, Mike. Uh, you have won the spelling bee this week. Well done, Mike. I'm glowing. We're recording today's episode on World Teachers Day, and we'd just like to give a shout out to our favourite teachers who've inspired us in our lives. I would like to give a shout out to Andy Ward, who was the director of PE, and he inspired me to go to university as a mature student. And I'd like to give a shout out to Mr Green, who taught me English at school when I was 17 or 18, and showed me just how reading can be a pleasurable activity not just to do exams at school and i'd like to give a shout out to 
Doc Ponsford, who was my mentor when I was training to be a teacher, and he was an incredibly inspiring man who gave me the love of teaching. And a shout out to all those teachers. Thank you, thank you, thank you. That was the Learn and Experience podcast. Goodbye, Julie. Goodbye, Mike. Goodbye, Sam. Goodbye, everybody. We hope you enjoyed the show. That was the Learn and Experience podcast, brought to you by the people bringing the world's youth together since 2009 through adventure, life skills, and language. Please visit our website at learnandexperience.com to find out more.